okay, I admit it, I love a good spy novel, whether it be Ian Fleming's James Bond, Len Dayton's The Ickress File, or John Le Carre's Tinker Tailor. But as great as all these are, perhaps my favourite spy novel is Ken Follett's magnificent 1978 novel, Eye of the Needle, later made into a 1981 film starring Donald Sutherland. The plot involves a World War II German spy in London who discovers key information about the D-Day landings and tries to relay this information back to Berlin before it's too late. But whilst that's fiction, the reality was that by the start of World War II, the German adver, the intelligence department, had sleeper agents in many European countries, and of course, all around the world, including the USA. And in 1941, just six days after the USA entered into World War II, one of those spy networks was taken out by the FBI. In today's episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast, we look at the US Nazi spy network. to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. For their otherwise brilliance in technical fields during World War II, and I'm thinking of the engineering of their tanks, equipment, and such devices, the Enigma machine, they came all with problems. The tanks, particularly the Tigers and the Panzers, were vastly superior to most Allied tanks, but they were so intricately designed that it was difficult to conduct field repairs compared to the mass-designed and interchangeable parts for the Russians and the American tanks. The Enigma machine was so complicated that when British intelligence finally cracked the code, the Germans were so proud and certain of its invulnerability that it pretty much shortened the course of the war with the wealth of information received daily. And that short-sightedness permeated into its spy networks, with Britain in particular quickly finding and arresting most German spies and then using them to send false information back to Berlin for the rest of the war. But our story today goes back further in the foresight that Germany had that the USA would be eventually dragged into another European war. The US has always been a country of immigration, with its citizens quite rightly proud of its heritage. In the latest US census from 2020, we can break down the public's ethnic origins as follows. English, 46 million or 19.8% of the population, probably down to many years of transportation. German, 44 million, or 19.1%. 
Irish, 38 million, or 16.4%. Italian, 16 million, or 7.1%. Polish, 8 million, or 3.7%. Just a fraction below the polls is God's country, Scotland, with just about 8 million, or 3.6%. Or to put it into perspective, even more than the whole country of Scotland nowadays. And so on and so on. When the war was declared in 1939, many naturalised Germans and also American-born males of German heritage answered the call to the fatherland, called the Rookwanderer, which urged ethnically appropriate males to go to the German embassy, swear allegiance to Germany, and they would get a permit to return and fight in the war. But other Americans of German descent held jobs of strategic importance, and they were encouraged to be left as sleeper agents. Our story comes from the FBI, and it starts in 1939. William Siebold was born in Mulheim, Germany, in 1899. During World War I, he served in the German Army Engineering Corps. After the war, he emigrated to the United States in 1922. There, he found work in industrial and aircraft plants in various US states. With war potentially looming in Europe, Siebold decided to go back and visit his mother in February 1939. On his arrival in Hamburg, Siebold was approached by a member of the Gestapo who said that Siebold would be contacted in the near future. Siebold proceeded to Mulheim where he gained employment. Then in September 1939, a Dr Gassner visited Siebold, interrogated him regarding military planes and equipment in the US. He also asked Siebold to return to the US as an espionage agent for Germany. Subsequent visit by Dr. Gassner and a Dr. Renkin, later identified as Major Nicholas Ritter of the German Secret Service, persuaded Siebold to cooperate with the Reich because he feared reprisals against family members still living in Germany. Siebold's passport had been stolen shortly after his first visit from Dr. Gassner, and Siebold went to the American consulate in Cologne to obtain a new one. Whilst doing so, Siebold secretly told personnel and the American consulate about his future role as a German agent and expressed his wish to cooperate with the FBI on his return to America. Siebold reported to Hamburg where he was instructed in such areas as preparing coded messages and microphotographs. After completing his training, he was given five microphotographs containing instructions for preparing a code and detailing the type of information he was to transmit to Germany from the US. Siebold was told to retain two of the microphotographs and deliver the other three to German operatives in the United States. After receiving final instructions, including using the assumed name 
of Harry Sawyer. He sailed from Genoa and arrived in New York City on February 8, 1940. The FBI had been advised of Siebold's expected arrival, his mission and his intentions to help identify German agents in the United States. Under the guidance of FBI agents, Siebold established residence in New York City as Harry Sawyer, using the cover as a diesel engineer consultant to help him establish contacts with members of the spy ring. He was then to meet with various spies, pass along instructions to them from Germany, receive messages in return and transmit them back to Germany in code. With Siebold's masterful acting, the FBI played right along with the ruse, using some deceits of its own. First, FBI lab engineers built a secret shortwave radio transmitting station in Long Island. In May 1940, Bureau agents established contact with the German shortwave station abroad. The FBI Long Island radio station served as a main channel of communication between German spies in New York City and their superiors in Germany for 16 months. Pretending to be Siebold, FBI agents sent more than 300 authentic sounding messages and received another 200 messages from Germany. The FBI helped set up an office for Harry in Manhattan where he would receive visiting spies. The office was outfitted with hidden microphones and a two-way mirror which could watch and film everything going on and with cameras secretly rolling, Siebold met with a string of Nazi spies who wished to pass on secret and sensitive national defence and wartime information to the Gestapo. One of those visitors was Fritz de Kuzny, a veteran spy who served as the group's leader. In Siebold's rigged office, de Kuzny explained how fires could be started at industrial plants and shared photographs and plans he'd stolen for a plant in Delaware describing a new bomb being made in the US. Once the FBI had enough information to pinpoint the members of the ring and enough evidence for an airtight case, 33 spies were arrested, 19 quickly pled guilty, the remaining 14 spies were brought to trial in Brooklyn on the 3rd of September 1941 and they were all found guilty by jury on December the 13th 1941. On January 2nd 1942 the 33 members of the Nazi spy ring were sentenced to serve over 300 years in prison. And these are the stories of some of these spies. Let's start with the leader, Frederick Fritz Jobert Duquesne. He was born in the Cape Colony, South Africa in 1877. He came to the United States in 1902 and became a naturalised US citizen in 1913. He was a natural petty criminal and he was implicated in fraudulent insurance claims including one that resulted from a fire aboard the British steamship Tennyson, which caused the vessel to sink in 1916. He was arrested in 1917, and he had in his possession 
a large file of news clippings concerning bomb explosions on ships, as well as a letter from the assistant German vice-consul in Nicaragua. The letter indicated that Captain Duquesne was one who'd rendered considerable service to the German cause. When Siebold returned to the US in 1940, Duquesne was operating a business known as Air Terminals Company in New York City. After establishing his first contact with Duquesne by letter, Siebold met him in Duquesne's office. During their initial meeting, Duquesne, who was extremely concerned about the possibility of electronic surveillance devices being present in his office, gave Siebold a note stating that they should talk somewhere else. After going to an automat, the two men exchanged information about members of the German espionage system. Duquesne provided Siebold with information for transmittal to Germany during subsequent meetings, and meetings which occurred in Siebold's office were filmed by FBI agents. Duquesne, who was vehemently anti-British, submitted information dealing with national defence in America, the sailing of ships in British ports, and technology. He also regularly received money from Germany in payment for his services. On one occasion, Duquesne provided Siebold with photographs and specifications of a new type of bomb being produced in the United States. He claimed that he secured that material by secretly entering the DuPont plant in Wilmington, Delaware. Duquesne also explained how fires could be started in industrial plants. Duquesne was brought to trial and convicted. He was sentenced to serve 18 years in prison on espionage charges, as well as a two-year concurrent sentence in payment of a $2,000 fine for the violation of the Registration Act. Paul Bant was born in Germany and served in the German army during World War I. He went to the United States in 1930 and became a naturalised US citizen in 1938. Siebold met Bant at the little casino restaurant which was frequented by several members of the spy ring. During one such meeting, Bant advised that he was preparing a fuse bomb and he subsequently delivered dynamite detonation caps to Siebold. Entering a guilty plea in violations to the Registration Act, Bant was sentenced to 18 months' imprisonment and fined $1,000. Max Blank came to the US from Germany in 1928. Although he never became a US citizen, Blank had been employed at the New York City German Library and a bookstore which catered to the German trade. Paul Fans, a major player in the case, informed Germany that Blank, who was acquainted with several members of the spy ring, could secure some valuable information but lacked the funds to do so. Later, Fans and Blank met with Siebold at his office. They told Siebold that Blank could obtain details about rubberized self-sealing aeroplane gasoline tanks as well as new braking devices for aeroplanes from a friend who worked in a shipyard. However, he needed money to get the information. 
Blank pled guilty to violations of the Registration Act. He received a sentence of 18 months imprisonment and a $1,000 fine. Paul Fans was born in Germany and he came to the US in 1934 and became a citizen in 1938. He was employed as a cook aboard ships sailing from New York Harbour. He was one of the directing forces of the Espionage Group. He arranged meetings, directed members' activities, correlated information that had been developed and arranged for its transmittal to Germany, chiefly through Sebald. Fans, who was trained for espionage work in Hamburg, claimed that he headed the Marine Division of the German espionage system in the US. Having become quite apprehensive and nervous, Fans made plans to leave the country. He obtained a position on the SS Sebony, which was scheduled to scale from Holboken, New Jersey, for Lisbon, Portugal, on the 29th of March, 1941. He planned to desert ship in Lisbon and return to Germany. However, before he could leave the US, Fans was arrested by FBI agents. Upon arrest, he admitted sending letters to Italy for transmittal to Germany, as well as reporting the movements of British ships. Fans was sentenced to plea of guilty to serve one year and one day for violation of the Registration Act. He subsequently pled guilty to espionage and received a prison sentence of 15 years. Felix Janke left Germany for the US in 1924 and became a naturalised citizen in 1930. He had attended military school in Germany and served in the German army as a radio operator. Janke secured the services of Joseph Klein, a radio technician, in building a portable radio set for Janke's apartment in the Bronx. Janke used this radio to transmit information which were intercepted by the FBI to Germany. He also visited the docks in New York Harbour to obtain information about any vessels bound for England. He pled guilty to violation of the Registration Act and he was sentenced to serve 20 months in prison and pay a $1,000 fine. Hartwig Richard Cleese He was born in Germany and he came to the US in 1925 and became a naturalised citizen in 1931. He was employed as a cook on various ships. He obtained information for Germany, including blueprints of the SS America, which showed locations of newly installed gun emplacements. He included information about how the guns could be brought into position for firing. Cleese also obtained details on the construction and performance of new speedboats been developed in the US Navy. This information he submitted to Siebold for transmittal to Germany. He pled guilty on charge of espionage and received an eight-year prison sentence. Evelyn Clayton Lewis was born in the US. She was a native of Arkansas. She was the girlfriend of Fritz de Kessney. She had expressed her anti-British and also anti-Semitic feelings during her relationship and she was aware of his espionage activities and she condoned them and more than condoned 
She was active in obtaining information for Germany and she helped Duquesne prepare material for transmittal abroad. She pled guilty and was sentenced to serve one year and one day in prison for the violation of the Registration Act. Herman W. Lang came to the United States from Germany in 1927 and he became a citizen in 1939. He was one of the four people Siebold had been told to contact in the US. And until his arrest, Lang had been employed by a company manufacturing highly confidential materials essential to the national defence. During a visit to Germany in 1938, Lang conferred with German military authorities and reconstructed plans of the confidential materials from memory. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison on espionage charges and two-year concurrent sentence on the Registrations Act. Everett Minster Rodier was born in the Bronx in New York. He was a draftsman and a designer of confidential materials for the US Army and Navy. Siebold had delivered microphotograph instructions to Rodier as ordered by the German authorities and Rodier and Siebold would meet in public places and proceeded to spots where they could talk privately. In 1936, Rodier had visited Germany and was requested by German authorities to act as an agent. Primarily due to the monetary rewards he would receive, Rodier agreed. He pled guilty and was charged with espionage and sentenced to 16 years in prison. Oscar Stabler came to the US in 1923 and became a citizen in 1933. He was a barber aboard transoceanic ships. In December 1940, British authorities in Bermuda found a map of Gibraltar in his possession. He was detained for a short period before being released. Stabler served as a courier, transmitting information between German agents in the US and contacts abroad. He was convicted and sentenced to serve five years for espionage and a two-year concurrent term under the Registrations Act. Enric Strunk went to the US from Germany in 1927 and became a citizen in 1935. He was a courier for the group and he carried messages between German agents in the US and Europe. He requested authority to steal the diplomatic bag of a British officer travelling aboard his ship and to dispose of the officer by pushing him overboard. Siebold convinced him that it would be too risky to do so. He was convicted and sentenced to serve 10 years in prison for espionage charges and also two years for the Registration Act. Bertram Wolfgang Zinzinger was born in Germany and came to the US in 1940 as a naturalised citizen of the Union of South Africa. His reported reason for coming to the US was to study mechanical dentistry in LA. In July 1940, Zinziger received a pencil for preparing invisible messages for Germany. He sent several letters to Germany through a mail drop in Sweden outlining details of national defence materials, pleading guilty 
He was sentenced to eight years imprisonment for espionage and 18 months for violation of the Registrations Act. And so on and so on the cases went until there were 33 convictions. It didn't stop the German spy efforts in America, but it did make a mighty dent in it. And what of William Siebold, the hero who no doubt saved countless lives? When the trials ended, Siebold disappeared. He entered a government witness protection programme and he moved to California under an assumed identity. He had countless jobs, even trying to be a chicken farmer, but could never hold down a job and was constantly plagued by bad health. Letters from his family back in Germany explained that the Nazis wanted to exact a revenge, leaving him in a constant state of fear. Siebold was diagnosed with manic depression and committed to Napa State Hospital in 1965. In 1970, he had a heart attack and died. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. And if you did, please like, subscribe, and you'll find me on Twitter on the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. And it's always nice to hear from my listeners. Send me an email. Tell me what your favourite episode is. Email's in the show notes. But until the next time, bye-bye.